Well, good evening. It's good to be with you once again this evening as we can come together to one more time open our Bibles and to look at some things that God has to say for us. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, pretty much right there all this evening. And we encourage you to get your Bibles and join with us as we study. And as was announced, this is the final lesson in this series. And sometimes I feel like that little lost puppy dog. You just hope people keep you in, take you in, and just let you stay. But uh, life goes on. But I, I, it's been a very, very good week for me. I want to thank the elders, first of all, for inviting me. I've been here several times. I know so many of you now. There's a depth of love and friendship among us, and I, I appreciate that so much. Uh, it's hard sometimes when you preach to strangers or you go to a strange place. Uh, that one place one time, you say a little joke and everyone just stares at you and think, okay, <laughs> tough crowd. They don't like you, you know, but you're just so warm, so encouraging, and I appreciate that so much. As I said on Sunday, I love this church. You guys are doing lots and lots of things that are right. And work together as a team would be my advice to all of you, the shepherds, the preacher, the members. The more transparent, the more togetherness you can be, the better things will be. I go to a lot of places, and a lot of places don't look like this. There's a lot of places that's a mess today. And you have something good going here. And you need to be thankful for that. Those things doesn't, don't just happen. They happen because you make it that way. When you want a welcoming church, you have to be welcoming. You want a warm church, you have to be warm. You want a strong church, you have to be strong. And that's where it comes from. And so really appreciate that so much. I was talking to my Jordan today, and I said, he's asked me how these day classes were going. And I said, well, they're going pretty good. I think they're going to be doing them next year. He said, thanks, Dad. <laughs> I said, well, there you go, man. There you go. So once again, so good. So good being with Sean. Spend some time with Sean today and just love him to death. You have something good in Sean. And keep him. Keep him. Work him. That's why he wants to be done, and I appreciate him so much. I love him so much. He's just a wonderful, wonderful man of God, and I appreciate him so much. You know, when I do things like this, when we come to the end, I often feel like I leave more than what I've given, and that's always kind of the feeling I have sometimes. Sometimes I think, oh, I'll just preach these simple little sermons. Years ago, when I lived in Kansas City, I would come back to Indiana several times for meetings, and one time, my dad went with me, and every night, we're going to people's homes out to eat, every night. He says, is this what you do? You preach those little sermons, and these people feed you like that? And I said, yeah, that doesn't seem right. He said, I'm going to take up preaching, you know? <laughs> said, Go for it, man, you know, but, but it is. I want to thank everybody who's taken care of me in so many ways. The food is wonderful, but the encouragement means more to me, and I appreciate that so much. You know, the stories of this old preacher... And after about 50 years of preaching, he was going to retire. And so he and his wife were at the church building, boxing up his library and just getting things all wrapped up for him to move out. And he noticed in the corner there was a basket. And there were four eggs and $3,000. He'd never seen that before. And he looked over at his wife and said, what is this? And she goes, oh, oh that's me. I, I know about that. She says, every time you preach a bad sermon, I put an egg in that basket. Well, he looked in there and thought, preaching 50 years, there's only four eggs? That's pretty good. Where'd the $3,000 come from? She goes, silly, when I get a dozen eggs, I sell them. <laughs> and I know the feeling. Well, a father and his grown sons were walking through a cornfield one day. They were not farmers. 
They didn't really care about the corn. And for most folks, this looked like just any other Midwest cornfield. But the father and his grown sons had done some research. And they've done some studying. And years and years ago, the Missouri River flowed right through that cornfield. And in their study, they found that a long time ago, there was a steamboat called the Arabia. And it was loaded. It was a Walmart on water. And it was heading out west to Iowa to start a brand new town. And it was loaded with stuff. And this father and his grown sons believed from their research that it was in that cornfield. They contacted museums worldwide if you would fund them. And everyone thought they were on a wild goose chase. Nobody would do it. The father and sons owned their own heat and air conditioning business. They mortgaged that. They mortgaged their homes. They set about getting some people to help them. And they excavated and excavated. And what they found was the largest pre-Civil War find in the world. In Kansas City, it's a state-of-the-art museum. After this was found, and they started recovering all this, and they're still in the process of recovering. There's so much stuff. The Smithsonian called, wanted to buy them, and they said, no, thank you. It's a little too late. But what they found was a remarkable, remarkable treasure. And this evening, as we end our series, we want to go to Matthew chapter 13 and talk about a treasure. Two men found some treasure. And in that simple concept, I'm going to share with you some lessons about this. Now, what Jesus does in his parable as he begins this, he reminds us that there's a series of comparisons he's making about the kingdom. And if you were with us in some of our classes, that's the idea we've talked about with parables, is that parable means to lay beside or a comparison. So notice as we just kind of scan some of this real quickly, in verse 24 of Matthew 13, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. You look at verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. We go down to 44, the kingdom of heaven is like 45, the kingdom of heaven is like 47, 52. All through this chapter, he's trying to get his people to see, I want you to see what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's almost as if Jesus was holding up an object, and he's just turned it this way, and this way, and this way, and we're looking at it from all these different angles to notice that the kingdom of heaven is so unlike what we think. It's not a military kingdom. It's not a kingdom where there's somebody who's sitting on the throne in an earthly place. But he's dealing with that concept of salvation. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he reminded Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, it would act like kingdoms of this world. We'd have some soldiers behind us, and we'd be getting our swords out, and we'd be fighting you to the death. That's what kingdoms of the world do, but my kingdom is not like that, he would say. In the book of Daniel, he reminds us that it's a spiritual kingdom that will endure forever. And so having said that this evening, we go to just two of these reminders or two of these comparisons where we see. And we're going to look at verses 44, 45, and 46. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Upon finding the one pearl of great value, he went out and sold everything that he had and bought it. Simple thoughts. I want to give you three simple ideas about this. 
Number one, both men recognized the incredible value of the kingdom. Both of them saw that treasure. And one account is called a treasure. The pearl is called the pearl of great value or the pearl of great price. And what these men recognized was the idea that this treasure is salvation. Salvation in Jesus Christ. When we think about the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 where Paul calls it a gift. Or in 2 Corinthians 9 where Paul again thanks God for this incredible gift that they had. And so we see as Revelation 1 teaches us. It says in Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's what they found. Jesus is using this illustration of two men coming from different perspectives and in different ways, but they both come to understand the kingdom of God, the nature of God, and the salvation that's found in it. And that salvation of Christ is something that Jesus can change your past. You know, sometimes in golf, when you hit a bad shot, somebody will say, get a mulligan. Well, life, you can't get a mulligan. You can't be 60 years old and say, you know what, I'm going to go back to high school and start over. That doesn't work anymore. And sometimes we've made some big mistakes in our life. And sometimes we've hurt a lot of people. And sometimes we've let people down. And sometimes those sins have remained there. But Jesus can change that past. And he can change your present. And he can give you the hope of a better tomorrow. Only in Jesus Christ do we find these things. And only in Jesus Christ do we see the great value of that. So this is what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 16. What does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and lose or forfeits his soul? This is the most important thing. This is the value of preaching. We're living in times where a lot, a lot of modern churches are done with preaching. They don't want to hear the word sin. They don't want to talk about Bible doctrine. They want to just talk about you're good, I'm good, feel good, be happy, let's smile, let's get out of here. I know. I've got one of those what happening churches right beside where I preach. Packed on Sunday morning. Big crowds. And what they want to do is have their rock concert. What they want to do is feel good. What they want to do is see things. But the Bible is not open. They don't talk about the Bible. They don't talk about salvation. What they talk about is just themselves. And this reminds us of how important this is. Now, what I want you to notice with both of these men in Matthew 13, they recognize the value. You ever see that TV show about the antiques, the antique road show? Some guy comes in there with this weird doodot thing, and in his mind, this thing's going to be worth $10,000. He puts it down there, and the appraiser comes in there and says, Sir, this is junk. And he goes home. And then here comes a little old grandma. She's got this little bitty postcard painting, and she lays it down there, and he says, this is worth $10,000. Now, these men didn't have to get an appraiser. These men didn't say, huh, I wonder what that treasure's worth. Here's a pearl. I wonder if it's any good. They recognized the value. And that's a thought for us. Some people never see the value of salvation. I don't see the value of following the Bible. I don't see the importance of doing these things. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We remember the story of the rich man Lazarus. And we remind ourselves in Luke 16, here's a man who saw the value, but he saw it too late in life. 
And in verse 23 and verse 24 of Luke 16, and in Hades it says, he lifts up his eyes being in torments and sees Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. I didn't see it in this life. In this life, I wore purple, which was expensive. I ate fine. I lived in a gated community. Everything I had was great, but when I died, now I see the value. And so these two men, while they were alive, saw something. And they said, you know what? I can't get this at work. I can't get this from my family. I can't get this from my relationships. I can't get this from going on a vacation. I can't get these things anywhere else. And what they recognized was the great value in those things. Now, as we think about this, we need to recognize, as we think about this, this concept of how do we determine value? Now, if we're in a college economics class, they go through all kinds of long chapters of explanations, and most of us would be asleep by the third page because economics in my book is kind of boring, doesn't go anywhere. But when we think about value, what's your house, house worth? I don't know. You'd get an appraiser in there, wouldn't you? What's your net worth? Well, value, first of all, is based upon how much it costs to make. My youngest son, Joe, He's a car guy in my family. And he's got this little Ford Ranger. We call it the Danger Ranger. You got, he's got the roll-up windows. When he goes on the interstate, he has to turn off the air conditioning so he can get up to speed. Okay? So I want you to get this picture. So one day he called me. He says, Dad, I just pulled into a parking lot. You won't believe what's parking on the right side and the left side of me. I said, what is there? He said, on the right side, there's a Maserati. On the left side, there's a Lamborghini SUV. I said, I didn't know Lamborghini made SUV. If I can afford a Lamborghini, it's not going to be an SUV. And we looked it up. Lamborghini SUV starts at 225,000. 225,000. I said, son, go out the back window. Do not open your doors. <laughs> Do not ding that 225,000. Whoa, why are some cars so expensive? Why are some homes so expensive? Because of what it takes to, to make those things. Now, over in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, as we turn this very thought spiritual, and we think about Jesus Christ, notice what the apostle tells us in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why is salvation so rare? Why is salvation so expensive? Because of what it takes to get this. I can't die for you. Can't die for you. Some of you, as we think about tomorrow being Veterans Day, we honor our veterans. But you go to war, and sometimes the soldiers don't come home. And some of the soldiers gave their life. Sometimes they died protecting other soldiers. My father tells me stories when he was in World War II about some of his fellow soldiers falling on live grenades 
to protect everyone else. That person would die. Did that person save those people? Physically, spiritually, no. Your good grandmother, your mom, your dad, your favorite friend, nobody can save you but Jesus Christ. And that's why this is so important. I was in a religious bookstore one time, and, and they had a bunch of T-shirts. And there was a T-shirt with a big drop of blood. And it says, it took just one drop. No, it didn't. If it took one drop, all Jesus had to do is prick his finger, and we're done. He shed his blood. He bloodied himself out, we may say. That was the cost of our salvation. The second thing about salvation is how rare something is. One of a kind. That makes it expensive. And when you think about how rare something is, that reminds us. John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave us only begotten. Only. There wasn't a bunch of begotten ones. There was just one, and that was Jesus Christ. Peter tells us we're redeemed by his precious blood. How rare something is. In my office at home, through the years, I've collected some autographed baseballs. Baseball is my sport. And I've got some rare baseballs. I've got baseballs that has the names of Sandy Koufax, Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra. And I'm already thinking with all these 11 grandkids I got, I'm going to have to put them to higher ground. Because one of these days, I can see one of my grandkids taking that out there and rolling it in the grass and say, don't you touch that. Why? Because it's rare. That's what values determined. And then thirdly, what it means to you. That's how value is determined. What it means to you. Now, you grandmas and you mamas, I dare say somewhere, some drawer somewhere, you got this little picture of little stick people that was drawn. And it was drawn by your child or drawn by your grandchild. Now, you put that baby on eBay, you're going to get any bids. You take that picture and you go over here to the Phoenix Art Museum and say, hey, can we have a display of this? They would escort you out. And probably with that understanding, don't you ever come back. But if your house was on fire, that's one of the first things you'd grab. Because this is draw, it means something to you. There's a value there. And so when we think about this treasure, what we're asking about, what we're considering is, what does salvation mean to you? How important is God to you? And so for these two men... Walking along, they see this treasure, and they recognize the value of it. Now, secondly, as we go back to our passage, both men wanted this treasure. There was nothing like this. The world does not offer the joy, the peace, the hope, the second chance that God does. Vacations always end. Pets die. Friends move away. And what we see here is they, they saw something that they never saw anywhere else. And here's where our little parable splits. Because there's two people. The first one is going to be a man who just walks along and finds it accidentally. The second man is described to us as a pearl merchant. He is somebody who knows what pearls are. He's somebody who spent a lifetime. He knows the language of pearls. When I went to India several years ago, India is one of the places where they deal a lot with pearls. I brought my wife back some pearls. I could have been taken. I have no idea. You can talk pearl language. I don't know if it's a good one or a bad one. I don't know anything about pearls. This guy did. This guy spent his entire life looking at pearls. 
And he could see this one here and say, this is inferior quality. He could see this one and say, this is a pretty good one. And on and on it goes. But what happens is, on this one day, he finds this one pearl. This pearl like he's never, ever seen before. This pearl of great value. This pearl of great cost. So valuable. So important. He sells everything he owns just to get that one pearl. He knew what he was looking for. And what that pearl merchant found, maybe some of you today, maybe some of you are here this evening because you've been looking. Been to that church? Been to that church? Been to this church? Back and forth you go. And what you find is there's little depth, there's little Bible, little holiness, a whole bunch of disappointment. And you're looking, and you're looking, and you're looking, and you're looking. Why can't we find something like we read about in the Bible? And maybe a friend has invited you here tonight, and here you are. And you notice, we're not elevating ourselves. We're focusing on Jesus. We're here because of Jesus. And that catches your attention. Because other places don't do that so much. And you notice maybe in the songs, or maybe in the preaching, or maybe in the prayers, here's a group of people who are emphasizing faith and not feelings. They're emphasizing God and not me. And what you find is a group of people who are interested in doing the Bible pattern. God has left us a blueprint. And when we follow that blueprint, we become what God wants us to become. And you've been looking. And looking, and looking, and here it is. Let me tell you about one pearl merchant. His name is Ron. He's with us now there in New Albany, Indiana. Ron has three PhDs in biblical language. Teaches at a college that teaches the Bible. He first came up to, to meet us. When I heard that, you don't know how nervous that makes a preacher. When somebody has three PhDs in Bible language sitting right in front of you. Ron is a preacher in a Christian church. You know the Christian churches and the churches of Christ don't follow the same thing. They're into instrumental music, women preachers, accepting about everything. Ron retired from Florida, moved back to southern Indiana. Southern Indiana has more Christian churches than anything else. He went to big ones, little ones, country ones, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. Then he came to us. He says, I've got more in common with you than all these Christian churches. I said, what about the instrument? we got a problem because we're not going to use that instrument. We follow the Bible. He says, I have no problem with that. Here's a man who was looking. Here's a man who recognized when he saw it. I recognize a group of people who are serious about the Bible. They're not playing church. You know, when, when, when you were small, you played church. My grandma lived out in the country, and we'd, when we'd go visit grandma, we'd come, she'd bring home the Lord's Supper, what was left over. We'd line up the doll babies. I was a preacher even back then. We'd kind of slap them around a little bit, eat that Lord's Supper. We played church. And some of us are 45 years old, and we're still playing church. We've never gotten serious. What does this say? Does God care how I worship? And the answer is yes. And so this pearl merchant is somebody who was serious about those things. Over in the book of Colossians in chapter 3, the Bible says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So in Christ we find hope. 
And in Christ, we find direction. And in Christ, we find purpose. And in Christ, we find eternity. And all those things are found in Jesus Christ. It's not finding your inner self. I don't want to offend somebody here, but I'm going to say it. I've been flying a lot lately. And I'm finding more dogs on airplanes than children. And people need my dog. My, this is my support dog. Well, you can talk to your dog, but your dog's not going to talk back to you. Your dog's not going to give you encouragement. Your dog's not going to kick you in the pants when you need that. Your dog responds to your voice. And if you say, real nice, you're the ugliest creation I've ever seen, he'll wag his tail. If you say, will you please go out in the street and get run over by a car, he'll wag his tail. That's no support. Support's in God. And so if you need some help, you want some support, don't go to the animal shelter. Go to your Bible. That's what we need to see, and that's what we need to preach. The, the modern society, the modern church, has left this principle. And what they are doing is they're letting culture determine the direction we blow. The culture says, let's go this way. The modern church says, go this way. Modern church goes this way because culture goes this way. We'll stop and do this. It'll go that direction. It follows culture. The Bible follows Christ. We follow Christ. And so when somebody stands up there and says, you know, I know I look like a man, but inside I'm a woman. No, you ain't. No, you ain't. Call yourself that. Dress like that. Talk like that. But God made you who you are. Give us another 20 years and that guy's going to say, I know I look like a man and I dress like a man, but I really feel like I'm a sunflower. Well, I don't care. That's not what the Bible teaches. You are made in the image of God. But what do we hear today? Out of the voice of modern preachers. What do we hear today out of modern churches? Oh, don't hurt their feelings. That's who they are. What does God say? Repent. Follow me, as we talked about last night. How valuable that is. Now, the first man in our story, quite different. He's not looking. He's not the pearl merchant. He's just walking along. Kind of like you and me. We're just out in the field. We're walking along. And he stumbles upon this treasure, buried treasure. Do you remember in Matthew 25, the story of the one-talent man? What did the one-talent man do? He went out and buried his treasure. You see, they didn't have lockboxes like we do. And so what they would do oftentimes, because they didn't have the type of security we have today, that somebody may come through and steal my stuff, so I may bury my treasure in the field. So this man stumbles upon it, and he finds it. And guess what? He doesn't say finders, keepers, losers, weepers, because that's stealing. He goes and buys the field so he may have that. And what he's trying to do is understand that there's valuable treasure here with that. Now, that may be some of you tonight. Maybe you're here because mom brought you, your wife brought you, a friend brought you, and in your mind, oh, we'll hear this guy holler a little bit. I play a couple angry birds on my game, and we'll be done. We'll be out of here. But something is said. The way a prayer is given passionate, the way these folks sing, the way we look at our Bible, and starts grabbing your attention. 
And you start thinking about these things. And you start realizing these things. And you start asking yourself, well, what about me? What if, what if I did die tonight? When I was in Indianapolis preaching there many years ago, we had this young man who was 16 years old. He'd always go out, pop my hand. Good sermon, preacher. Pop my hand and off he'd go. For his 16th birthday, his mom and dad bought him the most yellow, fastest sports car I'd ever seen. Sunday morning, I'm preaching. He's right there in the audience. Good sermon, preacher. Two o'clock that afternoon, I was with his mom and dad as he put the sheet over his head because he took that hot sports car and wrecked it and rode it and killed himself. You see, you're not guaranteed to live to be 95. That's how we all want to be. I want to live to be 95, go asleep, wake up, and there's Jesus. It doesn't always happen that way. And what we need to see is this is a serious question. What if I died tonight? We have a 16-year-old girl in our congregation back home. Just turned 16. When she was 15, she was diagnosed with cancer. She's gone through the treatments. Right now, she's in remission. But 15-year-olds aren't supposed to get cancer, but they do. 16-year-olds are not supposed to die, but they do. And what we need to see is whether you're 16 or 66 or 96, the thing is the same thing. What if I died tonight? And it's not simply a matter of going to church. What about Jesus? What about my relationship? Am I living as God wants me to live? Now, as we continue with our study, there's two men. And there are two treasures. Both men sold all that they had. Both men really wanted what that treasure was. Both men were willing to pay the ultimate price. Can you imagine selling everything you own? Just let that sit in your mind for a minute. Okay, honey, get all those shoes lined up. They're gone. Mr. Roger, grab those ties. I'd be fighting you just a little bit, but they got to go. We're selling out. We're selling everything. The big TV, all those DVDs, all this, all that, all this, all this, all that. We're not going to Goodwill. We're selling everything we have. Why? Because this is worth more. I'd rather have that than all the stuff I have. That's more valuable than everything I have. These men recognize that concept. And from that, let's wrap this up by talking about whatever it takes. What are you willing to pay for whatever it takes? You know, Jesus said in in a great passage, if you turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 30. Matthew 5 verse 30, Jesus says, If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to to go into hell. Now, Once you cut off your right hand, it's not coming back. It's not like saying cut off your hair or your hair is going to grow back for most of us. Lose a toenail, most times your toenail comes back. You cut off your right hand, that's gone. And what Jesus is saying here is it's not the Romans who are doing this. You're doing this yourself. You're doing this yourself. You're putting your hand on the table, and you're not allowing someone else to do that, but you do that yourself because Jesus is saying, this is how serious our walk ought to be. 
Can you imagine in your household saying, I don't think we're going to go to heaven as long as we got a TV set in this house. We're getting rid of our TV set. You're going to think, man, we're worse than the Waltons. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's the ultimate. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so whatever it takes, number one, to have a thriving marriage. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to have a thriving marriage? And as we mentioned other times, sometimes people wait till that boat is going over the waterfall before they say, you know what, we're in trouble and we need some help. Are you willing to pay the ultimate price? Everything. Being honest. Being transparent. Forgiving. Connecting. Loving as God wants you to love. Do you see that amazing pearl? You see in this congregation here, couples that's been married 40, 50, 60 years. And they're just not old people who are just sitting together. They really like each other. And they're holding hands. And it's like they're kind of dating. But they've been married forever. And you look at that and you're 20 years old. And you're 30 years old. Boy, I'd like to have a marriage like that. Wouldn't that be awesome? Are you going to pay the price that has that? Because it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. Are you willing to do everything it takes to do that? Are you willing, to, if you have some troubles, to sit down with one of the shepherds and say, will you help us? Because we're not talking on the same level here. We want this. Are you willing to do whatever it takes? What about getting your children to heaven? I've met a lot of people in this world who, and, I, and every parent loves it. You know, it's like, like, like this lady one day who was walking down the aisle of an airplane. And she'd see an empty seat and go up to somebody, do you have any grandchildren? Yes. Well, she'd keep on walking. Do you have any Yes. Finally, she said, no, I don't. Then she sit down, let me show you mine. <laughs> we love our kids. We love our grandkids. But listen to me, more important than GED, more important than MVP is G-O-D, God. And your kid goes up, grows up, and he can hit that baseball out of the park. Amazing. Your kid can make a million dollars. Amazing. He loses his soul. Where's the amazing? It's gone. And we need to see, am I willing to do whatever it takes to get my child to heaven? Would I burn a vacation just to take them to be at a camp with other kids? Take them to a lectureship? Take them to be around other kids. Would I be willing to turn off the TV and say, you know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to do something we've never done before. We're all sitting at the table at the same time. We're going to eat together in this room. We're not going to go to different rooms. We're going to stay right here. And guess what we're going to do when we're done eating? We're going to talk. We're going to talk. Are you willing to do that? All we want our kids to go to heaven. I would do anything when my kids go to heaven. But we start talking about that. And sometimes we just don't want to do that. And then how about your own salvation? Are you, doing what, are you willing to do whatever it takes to get to heaven? How important is that? Walking daily with Jesus, praying without ceasing, being thankful for everything, having a heart of compassion, grace, and forgiveness, to be engaged as an encourager, an inviter, to live righteously. You see that, and you think, wouldn't that be great? But what happens is we see that pearl and we see what it's going to take to get that pearl and we say, nah, nah, I would like to have that, but nah, I ain't going to pay that much. And we will all the way we walk. 
Oh, look at this. Look at that treasure I found in the field. Man, I'd like to have that. What was it going to take to really buy the field? Nah, nah, it's not worth that for me. And we walk away. And we walk away not being where God wants us to be. If you're willing to drive, and some of you already do this, if you're willing to drive miles and miles and miles to go to a thriving congregation, where I live, there's some congregations that are so small. Ten people here, 12 people there, holding on, life support, hardly doing a thing. And yet there are large congregations nearby, but they won't leave it. They're dying. Their faith is gone. They're stuck in tradition, going nowhere, doing nothing. And, they, and all they do is complain. Well, we used to have a hundred folks, but we don't today. Well, we used to have a day when people would come, but now they don't. What are you going to do to save your soul? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to go up to Sean and say, Sean, I need some one-on-one -on -one Bible study because I just don't know that book. I want to go to heaven. I want to do whatever it takes. That's what this lesson's all about. When we think about the discovery of real treasure, treasure in the field, and they didn't say, well, look at that. That's pretty cool. That needs to be in a museum. No, I've got to have that. I've got to have that. And I'll do anything I can to get that. I'll sell everything I own to get that. And Jesus says to become a disciple of him, what we must do is to deny ourselves, that's selling everything, to take up our cross, and follow him daily. Family went to Washington, D.C. as a vacation one time, and they were looking at all the monuments and stuff. A little boy came and looked at the Washington Monument. He was just, wow. Park Ranger was there, and he was telling them how tall it was and what material it was made out of, how old it was. And the little boy shot his hand up and says, Mr. Park Ranger, I've got one question. He says, what is it, boy? He said, I, I want to buy that. The park ranger kind of laughed a little bit. He says, well, son, how much money do you have? He reached in his pocket, a whole wad of coins, and it took him forever and a day, but he had $1.35. The park ranger says, son, number one, you don't have enough money. Number two, it's not for sale. And number three, if you're a citizen of this country, it's already yours. That's what heaven is for us. You cannot be good enough to go to heaven. You die and leave this church a mountain of money, that's sweet for this church, but it's not going to open the door of heaven for you. You need to realize that you need to give your heart, your life, to Jesus Christ. And if there's things in your life that's not right, time to step it up. If you're not attending like you should, and you know that, time to step it up. If you're not really being serious with God, maybe two days, half a week, Several weeks go by before you even think to pray. You need to step that up. You haven't read God's word. You need to step that up. How else are you going to know about where you're going? And all this is about, here's somebody who saw something. And he didn't say, well, I'm going to go home and tell my co-worker I saw a pearl that was really great. I saw some treasure over yonder. Y'all come see that. No, I got to have that. I don't have that. I need that. I want that. I want it right now. And that's salvation. And this evening, if there's one among us, young or old, you've not been baptized in Jesus Christ, you need to. 
God wants us to be baptized because he said so. And we need to see that that's the entrance. Sometimes it's like a wedding. Sometimes people put so much in a wedding, they forget there's a marriage behind that wedding. That's the first day. God wants you to walk. God wants you to grow. God has expectations for you. But with all that you do, what a wonderful, wonderful place heaven's going to be. I guarantee you, your first five seconds in heaven, you're going to say, wow. Wow. You will not say, well, I sure thought it would be bigger than this. No, you will not. You will not say, well, I've been to Disney. No, no, no. I think of anything. I start crying. I can't believe I made it. I can't believe I'm here. And I don't ever have to leave. He's not going to say, okay, tour A is over. Tour B coming in. So get on down the road, Roger. Get down. No. Once you're there, you are there. And when you think about everything you had to do, it won't matter. It won't matter. When I fly, sometimes there are people at the airport waiting to pick me up. How was your flight? And sometimes it's like this. I was on one flight, and I think a guy did this on purpose so nobody would sit with him. But we hadn't, we hadn't started the engines yet, and he had his face in a throw-up bag. I thought, good night. I looked at that, I thought, this is going to be a long flight. I sat by a guy one time, he just took his shoes off, and I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to have to do that, you know? You know? And all kinds of stuff. I've been on flights where there's, you know, all, so bumpy that we don't get our drinks or get our peanuts or anything else. But, you know, once you're on the ground, how is your flight? It doesn't matter. I'm here. I am here. And that's all that matters. Some of you are going to have an easy flight. And that's just a blessing. Some of you is going to be struggle all the way. Struggle spiritually because it's just hard on you. Some of you are going to have people who resist you in your family, and that's going to be tough on you. But once you're landed, it just doesn't matter because I'm in heaven. And I think that's what Jesus wants to see about these two simple stories. There's a treasure. And he doesn't say, lucky me, I got it and you don't. No, what he says is, you can have this treasure. You can have the most valuable thing you own. It's not your home. Not your 401s, it's not this or that. The most valuable thing you can have is salvation in Jesus. No one can take that away from you except yourself. You stop walking, you turn your back, you're going to lose it. But you stay there, thick and thin, up and down, hot, cold, no matter what's going on around you, you'll make it. And your plane will land someday. And you'll be in heaven. And you'll think, You'll look around and say, there's some people that help me. There's some people as my preacher. There's my preacher. He taught me some things. Thank you, preacher. There's some of our shepherds. They, they guided me. They, when I was getting a little wiggly here and there, they got me right back to the middle where I need to be with the Bible. Thank you. Here's this and here's that and here's that. And all this together to help us. And I believe somebody will come up to you and say, the reason why I'm here is because of you. You encouraged me. You were there for me. That's what heaven's going to be like. A treasure. A wonderful, wonderful treasure. Don't you want that? If you're subject, won't you come? Stand singing.